Bud and Brotes would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on Wangle land. Wangle land uh, was land that was never ceded by the Wangle people. It is stolen land uh, and it remains that way to this day. Thinking about what decolonization means uh, is incredibly important for us as activists and it is incredibly important to think about as we have this conversation today, uh, which is around the experience of Aboriginal people inside the prison system and as well how they deal and interact with the police force. And so going forward from that, we really want to think about how do we address and how do we think about the police force and the prison system with that in mind. I want to warn everyone that this episode is with someone who has lived prison experiences and there are some issues that come up that are quite intense. So I just want to put a notice at the start of this episode um, that we do deal with a number of things in this episode um, from trauma and mental health issues um, that may bring up some feelings inside people. So just want to give you that before we jump into the interview. Welcome to another episode of the Pride and Protest podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Charlie Murphy. The episode that we have today is a little follow-up to the prison abolition episode that we had with Danica. So with Danica um, being a caseworker or working with people who have been inside prison, this episode we're going to be talking to Keith Quayle, um, who's someone with lived experience in prison. So Keith, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself in general and then maybe you want to talk a little bit about the context in which um, you came to uh, be in prison and what that experience was like for you. Thank you, Charlie. Um, so my name's yeah, Keith Quayle. Um, I'm an Aboriginal gay man. I'm 31 years old. Uh, so my first uh, encounter with the police uh, would have been when I was 21 years old. And uh, so my mum, she worked for the police at the time. She was the Aboriginal... Uh, policy officer so she used to do cultural awareness training with um the police out in western regions um that had a high aboriginal population and um yeah i ended up uh stealing her work car and um yeah got a good behavior bond for that but um when i look back on my criminal history i guess like that's where it all stemmed from and um from then, I, I, I wasn't um, incarcerated until I was... So I was on, like, good behaviour bonds that I had to report, like, once a week um, and be of good behaviour. Um, but my first prison stint wasn't until I was 24 years old. And um, that was for assault police. And... Um, yeah, my record is pretty much assault police or resist arrest. I guess, like, I'll talk about, um, yeah, my first time in prison. So, yeah, um, at the police station, they said to me, you know, I was pretty intoxicated and I come to, and they said after fingerprinting me and whatnot um, that I've been refused bail. And that was the first time that's ever happened. So then I was taken to Surrey Hills uh, cells. Um, down in those cells, uh, it's like underground. Um, if you can just imagine a really cold and wet and um, miserable environment, that's how going down uh, those steps to those cells were. Um, yeah, you put into a cell block where there's probably anywhere from one to ten people and the 
cell would only have like three like benches and um so everybody else and the prison guards would only give you like three mattresses as well so everybody else is required to to sleep on the floor or stand um Yeah, um, I guess being, like, Indigenous, that part of me was okay being in there because I knew that Indigenous people kind of ran jails and had authority in there. But there was also the part of me that, you know, always had that anxiety that what what if, you know, people found out that I was gay? You know, like, how would I then, um, like, respond to that? And I was worried that I was going to be, yeah, marginalised, like, and, you know, when I'm already that. So, yeah, uh, so I spent seven days in Surrey Hills. Um, There's no TV, there's no books. Um, You're in with people that are obviously coming down off drugs and alcohol, Um, people that are coming off methadone, um, and people that shouldn't even really be in prison at all because they have mental health issues and obviously they're going through some sort of psychosis. Um, so from Surrey Hills, they put you in a truck. There's about 10 of you. Um, and then you, you would have protection, which in there they would call, they call people in protection boneyarders. And, um, yeah, if you're lucky enough, you get like a tiny little window of the truck to look out of. So when you say uh, people who are in protection, what what do you mean by them being in protection and what are the reasons why they might be? So protection would be anybody, um, when they ask you at the beginning of the screening, when you go into custody, they'll ask you questions. Are you affiliated with any gangs or... Are you in need of protection for any reason? They, um, so the people that uh, would be in protection um, can be any anybody from like LGBT people, like uh, non-binary people, people that feel that they would be targeted in the main prison system. On the other spectrum, you'd have people like um, corrupt police, you'd have pedophiles, you'd have uh, gang members that are wanting to uh, not be in the main population because another, you know, gang member or whatever that they don't get on with is in that yard. Um, so, yeah, it can, it can range from um, a lot of different people. Um, and yeah, I, I, personally, I've never gone into protection, so I only can speak of it from, uh, from like afar, I guess, and from what I've seen. And, um, I do know that anybody that is in protection, I do know that they are, they're already stigmatized and, um, they're further stigmatized because they're surrounded by what what the main would call dogs and you know kitty fiddlers and whatever so would you say that you know obviously you talked about protection as being a very broad thing um that encapsulates a lot of people would you say that protection actually um is beneficial for lgbt people in prison or would you say it's a further complication um, yeah, personally, I think it's a further complication because, you know, it's set, it's, it's, you know, I mean, when I first went into prison, they give you this little inmate handbook. And if you read the handbook, you know, um, I should have one at home that I can <laughs> come and show you. But if you read the handbook, like it looks as if you have all your rights and everything is taken care of. But in reality, when that's translated, into actually being in jail, um, 
you know, I couldn't, even when they ask you these questions, like, do you, are, are you requiring protection? It will usually be um, not even a meter away from the people that you've just spent the time in the truck with. Um, so they're in hearing distance and also the, the guards and also the, the sweeper, which they call the inmate worker which would be doing reception, getting your clothes and whatnot, getting your blankets and everything. Like they would be an earshot of hearing that sort of stuff. And once you go into prote protection, it's very hard to come out of protection. Um, and I'm finding though that their building I've seen like with Junie Jail, and Parkley, I think they've just added a new protection unit. And it's quite funny seeing the dy dynamics change because once upon a time, protection people were, like, not not um, respected or anything, whereas in the last couple of years that I've gone into prison, they're the ones that seem to have the, the power with the drugs in there and... They seem to also get all the good jobs um, that the main people don't get. And I'm only speaking really at Parkley um, Prison because that's the yeah only one that I went to that I've seen it like that. So when you say you know running drugs inside prison and um, them getting the good jobs. Talk a little bit about what that means. What is the hierarchy in in prison? You know how how does it how does the actual power dynamics function in prison? So, um, like the top job, I guess in 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 prison, which um, I've had the privilege of doing, would be reception sweeper, and that will usually pay anywhere from 70 to 120 a week. Um, so that's, and that's, um, that's like, if you have that job, like everybody knows that you're a kind of a model prisoner. Like everybody knows that you're, you don't have what they call Intel, which is, um, you don't have any intel like that you are involved in any drugs, you're of good behaviour, um, you know, you go to the library, whatever, <laughs> like it's all documented kind of case noted. So unless you kind of have a good uh, behaviour record in jail, like that's kind of how the hierarchy works in terms of the way the, the guards treat you. In jail... Um, like in, with the inmates, the hierarchy, I guess, would go whoever has the money, drugs and power. And in jail, it changes. Uh, for example, like in Parkley, um, uh, the power structures would be the um, Middle Eastern people. They would have the drugs and the... Islanders would be their muscle and Aboriginal people tend to get drugs for free because uh, the other races know that if they are not to give Aboriginal people drugs for free, then the Aboriginal people are going to kind of uprise against them. <laughs> You know, that is just so intense to hear because we think about, I mean, well, we don't, but people in in general kind of think of prison as this place of disciplining people away from these kind of power hierarchies that may have put them in there in the first place, you know, running drugs or or, or violence or anything like that. But from what you've just described, it sounds like all those things that exist in the outside world uh, merely exist inside a, um, in a prison context, um, but it's just worse, you know, like the concept of like 
different races or different racial groups, you know, the tension between them actually seems seems heightened in 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 this context. Yeah. I just want to go back to um, the conversation we're having around protection and what it means for LGBT people. So you are a gay man that went into prison. You said that you didn't go into protection. So how did you deal with um, being gay in prison? Is it something that you disclosed to other prisoners or was it something that you had to um, stay, stay silent about? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I've, I've never been in protection. And the reason for me it's personal because, you know, obviously I, I come from a background of, um, you know, of trauma. So for me, um, I would rather be bashed because I'm gay than be put into protection with pedophiles. So that's kind of like how I worked it out in my mind. Um yeah, like when I went into jail, like, um, I mean, anyone that meets me, I guess, you know, they know that I'm quite uh, big in stature and everything. Um, but, you know, the kind of funny thing is like they say, I'll oh, wait till Keith opens his mouth and then, you know, you know that he's gay. Like, so that's kind of what I always had, like, in the back of my head, like, you know, I need to... <laughs> talk a bit more like this or you know what I mean like these yeah. are things that like were going through my head and um it was quite funny like to because I befriended a few people that I didn't disclose that I was uh gay to and um and you know also I gotta point out that in the Aboriginal community especially in Redfern or Waterloo um other Aboriginal people know who you are or they know of you so there's not too much um hiding you can do especially in jail you know um if they don't know you that that obviously know your family or whatever so you know there was a lot of guys in there that didn't know who I was and they knew that I was gay but they had enough whatever to not mention that to other prisoners and what I found, I guess, um, heartwarming, like, is that although I didn't make, you know, in my mind, like, long-lasting friends, but a couple of people that I have made friends in jail, you know, um, it, it's not an issue, like, my sexuality. And I guess that's something, I guess, that I took away from it, that maybe it's more in my head that, I, that I'm worrying about it, that other people and... And should I really have to be like, hey, my name is Keith, I'm gay Aboriginal every time I meet somebody, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's, that's all of me. Yeah, it's just like a part of me. Let's go back to the first time you arrested. So you had talked about um, being at Siren Hills Police Station and then um, being taken in the van or the vehicle. Um yeah, what was what what was the experience like? How and and how did you feel in those in those first moments? Yeah, like when you're in the truck, like you know, like I said before, if you're lucky enough to get a little window, you can kind of because when they drive you out of Surrey Hills, you're taken past the street of uh, Hungry Jacks, and then you turn left onto Oxford Street. So, you know, I, I guess that ride um, didn't mean as much, or could have meant as much to other people as it did to me because for me I'm looking at these tiny little bars and all I can see is you know my people like walking around and being and that the street that you know obviously brings back so many happy memories for me and um yeah seeing that kind of go in the distance um yeah it's something that will always stay with me it's just full of anxiety I mean like yeah, like you're in a truck, uh, you, you know, they're no more than like an, an inch from you. Um, and I have to also mention that like before you are classified, um, you know, if, if you have a look on Corrective Services website, they'll have like uh, different classifications depending on the crime that you've done. And usually when you're unsentenced, you're a B classification, which just to put it in perspective, it's like three down from the most worst 
uh, what the most worst that you can be classified. I'm pretty sure. Um, so when you're in unsentence, you have to wait about four, anywhere from four to six weeks, um, to get a hearing date. Um, and in that time, you know, my first time in prison, this is just for assault police. Um, I'm meeting people, uh, I'm meeting cousins, like one cousin, for example, that was from Wilcannia and he's in for murder. Like I'm meeting people that are in for rape. I'm meeting people um, that are in for like crimes in my mind that are nowhere near at the severity of my crimes. Um, so inside I'm petrified, you know, because I just don't know what these people are capable of. Um, you do feel a sense of, I guess, brotherhood more so in, with Aboriginal people, you know, but also I have to like mention, yeah, like the openly gay people that are in jail, that are in the main, that refuse to go into protection. And I mean, uh, yeah, like I find those individuals pretty amazing because they know that they they know kind of all the feelings that I'm feeling, yet they just still say, fuck it, this is me. Yeah, I, I find so much strength in that, that, you know, when I look back on my time, I wish it's something I could be. And when I look back on our struggle too, I think, you know, it's important to be different, especially in environments like that. And, um, yeah, so, um, on that as well, like I will mention, you know, that they are seen as kind of like a spectacle and, you know, the boys will make fun of them in a joking way, but sometimes they go a bit far or it's always highly sexualized talk and, as an introvert, I guess it's, I, I don't want to be the center of anybody's attention. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there is a kind of, there's a fine line between, um, you know, the ability to live freely, but then kind of having to exist in this space where you, I guess, have to fulfill certain expectations from people, especially in, you know, environments where you are, a minority in that space and I think there's always that inherent tension um but I personally can't imagine what it's like in in a prison environment so let's talk a little bit about what it was like for you coming out of jail you mentioned that you had that this is your first time in jail um which then I assumed that you had gone back what was it like coming out and then going, having to go back in? What would, what was the situation in which that arose? And I guess what I want to get at is, you know, how did the prison system fail in the first place to actually address the, the causes for, for going in there for you? Yeah. So, um, so, like, probably about, like, a month before you are to be released, um, they have uh, welfare um, that will come around and they'll usually organise your Centrelink payments. I think Danica mentioned in the last episode it's something like anywhere from 300 to $600. Um, so that's your crisis payment plus your advance of your next payment. So you have to remember that you are getting like an advance out of that payment. So really your next payment, when you're out on the street, you're only going to be end up with probably about $230. Um, I know that housing commission, they provide you with up to one month of uh, motel accommodation. In some cases they extend it. Um, but in other cases, you know, for me, when I got out of prison, you know, they put me in uh, a place, a foster house on, yeah, Mary Street in uh, Surrey Hills. And um, 
like the scene, the the place was, you know, yeah, like there was probably about I don't know forty odd single beds. You had like one tray, which you know, obviously, getting out of jail, you don't have much belongings anyway. So, you know, it's enough to hold a suit, uh, a backpack, and you know your personal items, but it's not secure or anything. So. You know, for me personally, I just decided to go on the street because I found that uh, it's more uh, safer for me to, uh, yeah, not be around so many other people that are kind of in a position of vulnerability. Yeah, like, I think, like, the first time you get out, like, there's no other feeling. Like, I remember getting out from Brie Warren jail, and that, that's an Aboriginal... Uh, that's an Aboriginal farm jail and there's only uh, 20, I think up to 28 men allowed um, at that farm. Um, sadly, they've, I, th- I believe they've closed it down this year in July um, along with Ivanhoe Prison, which is another Aboriginal um, prison. What, um, yeah, like the, I don't believe that the system, that the, the system like the prison system is set up to in any way rehabilitate you. And the reason I say that is because even the welfare workers, like, for example, there was this South African uh, welfare worker and, you know, we, because, you know, obviously they get you to do programs and stuff when you're in jail if you if you opt to do it. And it was at the time when the... South African farmers were being evicted and he tried to um, have this conversation with me of for me to feel like some sort of pity like for him <laughs> and um, yeah I kind of just lost it <laughs> yeah and kind of gave him a piece of my mind and he you know, like, I guess the reason why that sticks with me is because I, I asked him, like, how he got this job and where he worked before, and he told me that he had been in the army. And so in my mind, I just couldn't understand how you can make that leap from working in the army to then dealing with people that are in prison but not only have committed crimes but obviously have backgrounds of trauma and... Obviously, these welfare workers are not trained uh, in this area. And um, it's like you're dealing with people. And another one, he was like a Telstra-like linesman, you know. So, <laughs> But they're meant to, but the prison gives these people, you know, whatever the information they have on you. And then these people are then to know your life story and to kind of ad hoc counsel you and to rehabilitate you. And for somebody like me, like I take all of that into account when I look at the person, like especially if they're in a position of power that I'm meant to um, empower you to push you back out into the community. And a lot of them, you know, uh, they you can visibly see that they don't want to be in their roles. Um, they might even, they, you know, it's even happened like where, you know, you'll hear about the welfare worker talking to you about another welfare worker and running, you know, them down or, or prison officers running welfare workers down or, you know, like, yeah, I know know it's kind of like, yeah, off topic, but (laughs) like even the prisoners, like I know, like the prison guards, I find they act more like prisoners than the actual prisoners themselves. And I wonder if that is even like, it's because of the amount of time that they spend in there. And like, I'll give you examples, like, you know, with the Aboriginal people, like, you know, they'll say, oh, what are you doing, bra?" and stuff like that. Like, even just those little things, you'll hear the guards talk that way or, you know, so they kind of take on the personality of the inmate and that's what I find that the system is meant to rehabilitate inmates but then it kind of uh, turns like another group of another member of society I guess into uh, what they're trying to change like it it's yeah it's a weird 
little world like in there. I guess like to simplify it, they just try to be like the boys, like they and they try to and they will yeah, they just try to be like the boys and for somebody like me that's not a, <laughs> that's not like a part of the boys, you know, I don't you know, I don't care less about sport or anything like that. But in my mind, it's like, you know, they're meant to be professionals in a professional role. And it's really hard for anybody to get assistance if, you know, they talk to you that way and they don't take anything that you say seriously. Yeah, I can understand. So you're saying they sort of have like a certain, they take on a certain familiarity with, with the prisoners to kind of, be ingratiated on this in this social sense while actually like ignoring the idea that they should be there to rehabilitate people like to actually help them so that kind of way of socializing themselves hides that they think that they're getting more respect from the inmates but the inmates just think they're fuckwits to be honest like and you know that they're just tryhards and you know and that they have no lived experience and you know, they're just trying to emulate. It kind of reminds me of like appropriation or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I even had that conversation with my parole officer and because she was a correct, like she was a guard before she was my parole officer. And, you know, like I just moved from Waterloo out to Maryland. So I had change of my parole officers and my parole officer at Leichhardt, she was very um, like trauma-informed. And um, so working with her, like it was yeah it was pretty easy because she uh educated herself around that sort of stuff that people that usually go into prisons have backgrounds and like I don't want to say the majority but the ones that I've come across like you find very rare that um they actually do want to help you like I had them before, like I've been into prison now four times and the last time was because I had a parole officer at Leichhardt and he wasn't trauma-informed and he kept adding conditions to my order um, and one of the conditions was to not consume alcohol. And, you know, I've... I've already given this person uh, ample documents and and evidence to show that I'm medically known as an alcoholic. Like, so, and, you know, these are from psych reports and everything. It's not just caseworkers. Like, so what I couldn't understand, you know, is that he would even put a condition like that. I tried to even fight that condition and I asked to speak to the Aboriginal worker at Leichhardt and, uh, he said that, uh, you know, pretty much that their job is to help, like to um, help you re- rehabilitate, but they're also, their main priority is to keep the community safe. And if I'm not going to stop drinking, then obviously the community are at risk. So, if, you know, um, that's important because... I think a lot of people like myself tried to get into rehabs and it ended up being, uh, Long told me that in the central coast, and mind you, this is meant to be a rehab that is, uh, that accepts people that, uh, you know, have traumatic backgrounds. Um, but also that have drug and alcohol issues. So I think, you know, they put it under the umbrella of dual diagnosis. So there's not too many places out there that do uh, dual diagnosis services. And pretty much Duralong in the end, I gave him everything, my criminal history, all my psych reports and everything. And, yeah, they they said that um, because uh, around... Christmas last year, um, I had a admission into St. Vincent's Hospital and I was there for two days um, in the psych ward. So they took that as 
I was too mentally unstable to enter the rehab, even though I had told them that prior to my admission into uh, St. Vincent's Hospital that I had just lost my business, uh, which I was running the Aboriginal Cafe, Biriberi Cafe in Redfern with Arnie Beryl. Um, and it was a social enterprise that was helping a lot of uh, kids that in in and around Redfern. So this is the... Uh, the reason why in my mind that I had a mental breakdown. Um, but they said unless I'm to receive further counselling and then provide them with updates on that counselling, then they can't accept me. Um, so you can imagine how frustrated I was because I have my parole officer on my back telling me that I, I have probably about two weeks to get into a rehab or he's going to breach me. And... Uh, Another place, um, you know, because of my long uh, criminal history, um, wouldn't take me because of my violence history. And they, even though I had explained to them that all my violence had been under the influence of alcohol, and these are the reasons that lead up to my drinking and, yeah, and the reasons around addiction. And I'll go back to also that point of the 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 um, how you said you know not to drink alcohol. When I did get breached and I went back into jail, it, it takes about six weeks to get your um, parole hearing. So I had to go back in front of the the magistrate for sentencing on the new matter, um, which was. Uh, assault police um and look I, I just told i said to my lawyer like can you please explain to the judge that i don't understand why they're criminalizing a medical condition it'd be like if you had cancer and then they said you know oh well we're going to criminalize you and i understand that it, you know making that comparison people like people that are on chemo or whatever like you know don't act out but I guess the reason why I make that comparison is because the way that people view um, people that are on drugs and alcohol, they view them as if it's a, that it's a quick fix and they can just get better and they don't actually take into account the, you know, the trauma that led up to that person being addicted to drugs and alcohol in the first place. It's just insane that there would be this cycle where you know, you go to prison for certain violent acts under the influence and then you can't get into rehab because you have a violent past. That, that is a complete catch-22, you know. Um, there's no escape from that. And then, of course, it doesn't account for what you were saying about, you know, ex- external events that will have a, a, a negative effect on your on your mental health and how easy it is when you are in those precarious situations to have those, um, to have those influences, you know, be a trigger for, um, and and then and then you're locked out of all these services. Um, you know, it's crazy to hear that even rehabilitative services. So you know, you have your punitive services, but even the rehabilitative services will will be locking you out as well. Um, you had mentioned um, that going to go a little bit left field here you had mentioned that your um that your mother had worked in the police force and that um you had spoken to uh aboriginal workers in surrey hills as well how do you see the integration of um aboriginal people into the police force um and corrective services if they are and do you see it as a successful way to essentially address the problems that Aboriginal communities have with the police and prisons? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, um, like, for me personally, I don't believe in the, I believe prisons are obsolete and I believe the police force should be too. Um you know, because I just think that they're tokenistic gestures, really. You know, even 
in jail when you have Aboriginal workers, they're only given so so much uh, access, like, um, to materials and things, you know. So unless you really love your job in there, like, um, you know, I can see why people would leave and, you know, not... Because, because, you know, the working environment, even just from seeing how the working environment is for the corrective services, you know, you can, I, I, I couldn't understand why you'd want to be in a job if you hated it so much, you know. And also, you know, um, they have to realise that, you know, that it's a two-way street. Like if if we didn't commit crimes, they wouldn't have a job. So, you know, um, but yeah, I just think they're tokenistic gestures. Unless I mean, there's one constable. I she's only Millie Ingram's granddaughter, and she just uh, had an article. And um, you know, I know that she went into the police force, and you know she. Um, came out and she's doing other things now. But, you know, and I think a lot of Aboriginal people, even like my mother, they do go into, you know, these places and they do want to make a change. And, you know, um, from my mother's experience, like she was bullied out of the police force by, you know, her superintendent. So, you know, because mum wanted to make a lot of change and, you know, you had lazy people or people that were unwilling to want to make change. They were just happy to sit around, you know, and that's, and if you go into prison, you see that that's how the culture is. You see that, you know, everybody, like even the ones at at the top, like it's, they will only come out for photo ops or to tick boxes or whatever. Like I, I, I don't believe I don't, I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but I definitely, I definitely think that people have seen that the police and the prison system has been around for how long. And if it's not, it, like, if it's not working, like, well, I don't understand why we keep doing it. Yeah, I don't understand either. I mean, it's a form of disciplining certain communities or just having them in a particular place in society um, and never letting them out unfortunately. And yeah, I think, you know, from what I have kind of heard from other, other people from minority communities going into the the police force, it is the exact same thing, you know, going in there with the best of intentions and being bullied or just, you know, you know, not actually being able to, to make proper change in such a vast system And I think for people who don't understand on the outside, you know, white people seeing, you know, an Aboriginal liaison officer with the police or um, people seeing the the GLOWs, the gay and lesbian liaison officers, all they see is just that there's one representative there and then the assumption is, oh, you know, they must be like, they, they then have the consent of that community or then like therefore like their presence ensures like the safety of the community that they represent and it just ignores all the actual dynamics that go on between that person and the rest of the police force and the police force with that with that community itself. So being a um, gay man as well, how do you feel when you see the New South Wales Police Force and Corrective Services marching in Mardi Gras? Um, like, it, it makes me sick. <laughs> like, um, I guess more feelings of, um, like, I get baffled. Um, you know, not not just from an Indigenous person's perspective, but also as a gay man. And, you know, I believe because Mardi Gras was, you know, started on a right, I believe our treatment, you know, I think the best example would be the marriage equality plebiscite that they had and the campaign, no, and the disgusting 
shit that came out of that, you know, from people that will say that they're conservatives when really they're just hateful people. Like I, and that's not too long ago. So I just, I don't understand what we're celebrating for. Like, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, in my opinion, NADOC week, you know, I'm in like, I think it's important to showcase, uh, Aboriginal art and achievements, you know, but I do believe that it is just a tokenistic gesture of one week throughout the whole year that we recognise these Aboriginal people for, you know, what they've done and what they're capable of. Like with Mardi Gras, like once a year and, you know, it's like, you know, I'm I'm sick of being like tolerated, you know, (laughs) and I just feel that you know, I didn't even like. I didn't even know corrective services much, so that's new to me. So I mean, I don't even know why. Why you know? Because anybody that has gone into custody will tell you that they're not your friends, and I don't mean that by any kind of code. I just mean that by it's very rare that you'll find any corrective service uh, officer in there that will go out of their way to make sure that you are okay, let alone an LGBT-identified person. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's truly insane. <laughs> I guess, like, you know, a big narrative around Mardi Gras is that, like, there's this arc from protest to celebration. And I think, like, the argument is, like, you know, Mardi Gras was always, you know, taking its name off off the off off the Mardi Gras of um of the Americas. You know, like it is a form of celebration, but it's a a form of celebration that should be uncompromising in talking about its struggle. You know, it should never it should never hide um just how far there is still to go, and they think that some people who have Reap the benefits of what, um, you know, uh, the way the LGBT rights have integrated themselves into liberalism while other people have been left behind seek to kind of only make it about celebration. So as a final thought, you know, you said that that prisons are, prisons are obsolete and that the police are obsolete. What, what in your mind, you know, what are the kind of systems or or setups or community care that we should be providing for for um people who have traumatic backgrounds have um mental health issues um or people who who commit violence because of um because of those causes you know i think that we can talk all day about you know all the individual causes i think you know but if in my mind if you take away the major course and that's capitalism you know i believe that and move towards a more socialistic uh, so move towards more um a socialist society like i believe that that's the answer and it's not just the answer for lgbt people or aboriginal people i think it's a universal answer i think that you know i believe in basic universal income i you know i i i, I think that if you do want to remove, you know, these punitive power structures, I think, you know, the work does have to start in the community and teaching people like from a young age to be emotionally intelligent and to care about, you know, uh, their surroundings and stuff. Like uh, I don't, I just think that this society, it's not, you know, I don't have much faith like in it when you have people like Scott Morrison and you have the likes of Trump and you have, um, so to me, like I, you know, because I get affected by not just one issue, I think it's unfair to, well, not unfair, but I, I just don't personally find any reason to celebrate as of yet. Like these big acorn dinners, like like they're so bloody expensive that it's not even that people like myself or other people that 
are in community that they're the ones that represent like don't even get a seat like or could afford a seat at these tables and I think if you want inclusion of community you know you have to make it as such in my mind these tokenistic gestures but using the sweat and blood of people that are usually from low socioeconomic backgrounds that are the ones that don't give a fuck like that will throw the first brick like they're the type of people you know in society that I believe that you need to like kind of reach out to and and not forget about you know and um if you are in a position like of privilege in, in, in and you are a minority I think you've got even more of a responsibility to care for your brothers and sisters yeah you are absolutely justified in in your anger there well Keith honestly thank you so much for coming on that was an absolute monster interview um and we covered so much ground and I just really want to thank you for just how open you were about your experience and I can't imagine that that is necessarily something that's easy to share so I think you know it's in, incredibly brave and I hope that uh, everyone who listens really gets just a, a much better understanding of uh, what it is like to be inside and, um, and what we need to do going forward. So, Keith, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. If you would like to follow more of what Pride in Protest does, um, from its work against the police and the prison system to refugee rights, Indigenous rights and rights for LGBTQI people, please follow us at facebook.com slash pride and protest, or you can find us on Instagram. Our handle is pride.in.protest. And we will be with you for the next episode of the Pride and Protest podcast.